everyone, welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. In today's episode, I speak with Olaf Carlson Wee. Olaf joined Coinbase as the exchange's third employee, right out of college, enamored with the idea of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. After helping scale the operation to millions of users, he left in 2016 to start Polychain Capital, a venture fund designed to invest in digital assets. He managed to grow Polychain into the largest crypto fund, at one point crossing the 1 billion mark. He was already telling Wired Magazine about programmatic finance back in 2016. So it's no surprise Olaf is very excited about the growth and promise of DeFi. He thinks smart contracts are enabling different ways of organizing people and capital, turning traditional corporations into internet sovereign corporations. He says Compound Finance, one of Polytain's investments, is a great example of a business that was able to move from pen and paper based to software based. He doesn't believe the narrative that every blockchain is competitive with every other blockchain and that there can only be one winner. And he thinks that automated financial services will grow dramatically and that the smart contract execution environment will over time lend itself to many other types of applications that make up the internet today. But first, we start with his own background. I want to give a shout out to Ampleforth Ample, that's A-M-P-L. It's an uncorrelated based cryptocurrency that recently launched a liquidity incentive program. Its unique protocol, which automatically adjusts supply, makes it a good candidate for an uncorrelated collateral type in DeFi. All right, so here we are with Olaf. He's the founder and CEO of Polychain Capital, a, um, a really well-known crypto fund, uh, one of the, the very you know, earlier ones founded in, in 2016, back when DeFi wasn't even a thing yet. Uh, so Olaf, really, really pleased to have you excited for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me and very excited to um, dive into all things crypto. Great. Um, so before we, we dive into, into uh, you know, the, your investment thesis and different DeFi trends, um, I'd love to just hear about your background and what got you excited about crypto in the first place. Yeah, so I found out about Bitcoin in the summer of 2011 and immediately was enamored by the concept of a totally you know, decentralized monetary system mm. um, that is sort of governed by the users rather than by a central authority. And so mm. this idea of moving assets and money natively onto the internet and having it be a distributed system very similar to the internet itself, where there's no single governing body or person in control, whether it be uh, a government or a corporation, um, was extremely enticing to me and I felt like a massive breakthrough. Mm -hmm. So at first I was um, just skeptical that mechanically it would work. Mm -hmm. So I kind of spent that summer diving into how Bitcoin was constructed, right? The, all the peer-to-peer -peer networking, cryptographic signature schemes, um, and mining and everything and became convinced that this was actually a robust, resilient, and scalable system that would work um, to manage, you know, basically the world's uh, uh, money and assets. So at that point, I was going into my senior year of undergraduate studies and wrote my undergraduate thesis on cryptocurrency. Mm. Um, so and this was what like, were you? What were you studying at the time? Uh, I was majoring in sociology. So oh, so very was, far from like computer science and cryptography. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've always been um, a pretty hardcore internet user. Mm. Um, so I, I felt um, comfortable, obviously, navigating a lot of the complexities of the Bitcoin universe. Um, but I really had to convince my professors that this was an appropriate topic, given <laughs> the area of study. I think there was a bit of, I shouldn't, 
there was a lot of skepticism um, (laughs) around this topic. Um, But I think I eventually convinced them that it was sort of a valid, um, valid area and ended up finishing the thesis on, on cryptocurrency. So um, that was, you know, really exciting, but also at the time, you know, cryptocurrency was a very nascent area. Mm-hmm. It was basically, um, you know, an open source software project and a series of forums where people could talk about it. There wasn't what you would call like an industry the way we think about it today. So um, this was in, you know, 2011, 2012. Um, towards the end of 2012, um, I joined Coinbase as one of the very first users. Mm-hmm. I was like the 30th user of Coinbase and um, thought the product was fantastic. So I ended up um, emailing Coinbase and, you know, I was fresh out of school and basically said, I'll do any job um, (laughs) to work at, at, you know, just to join Coinbase. Mm -hmm. So I joined Coinbase as the first employee. Um, At the time, this was pre-Series A, you know, very, very early stage business um, operating out of a residential apartment in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I got started at Coinbase, um, I really got introduced to the entire kind of startup and, and venture backed business, um, ecosystem, which I really wasn't familiar with before joining Coinbase, mm-hmm. um, at Coinbase, I was there for three and a half years. Um, for the majority of that time, I was the head of risk. We scaled from about 10,000 to 5 million users. Um, we also grew to you know, from the three of us up to about 200 employees um, during the time I was there. So really went through some pretty aggressive hyperscaling narrowly within Coinbase, but also in a more macro level, you know, the crypto industry was, you know, being, you know, the foundation was being laid during that time. And 2013 um, had a, 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 a small, um, I don't know, quote unquote bubble. Like it, Bitcoin did have a, a run up in price. It, that it year, was actually, so. it was a big bubble, um, uh-huh. I, would, I would say. Uh-huh. Um, so in 2013, Bitcoin went from $10 to about $1,000, right. uh, you know, roughly speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of growth was also reflected in, in Coinbase's user base and just the general volumes and activity that we were processing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, a wild year. I mean, I was working a lot, um, in 2013 and mm-hmm. it was, it was a very big lift given it was sort of in a way, my first real job, um, Crazy. but managed to navigate it all. Um, and you know, Coinbase survived, uh, despite some serious, um, scaling issues. Mm-hmm. These are all the best kind of problems to have when you're running a business. Um, but Coinbase made it through that year, um, against all odds, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of our peer, you know, businesses from that time period ended up having various problems, um, mostly getting hacked. Um, you know, sometimes having issues with banking relationships. Um, we managed to sort of navigate all that. So, Mm -hmm. um, it was pretty remarkable journey going through all that scaling at Coinbase. And after the three and a half years there, is, is when I left in 2016 uh, to launch Polychain. Um, now, what, a, what an amazing journey to be, you know, right out of school into this rocket ship that was Coinbase and, and crypto at the time. And, um, and, you know, when the industry was just, just getting started with, with the Bitcoin chain, um, you know, starting in, in 2009. So, so just a couple of years, you, you started diving into it. Um, what, what, a, what an amazing time. So, um, so what kind of prompted you to start your own crypto fund? And um, I guess, what was the, the thesis behind it? And has, has that changed uh, until today? Yeah. So um, in 2016, I started to really notice and um, a lot of very, very interesting activity coming out of, at the time, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum was sort of a new architecture for a blockchain. And it tweaked some of the ways that Bitcoin worked. So it's still a peer-to-peer system. There's still this concept of kind of a native cryptocurrency that um, adds security to the system and also acts as sort of the monetary 
unit of account in the system. Mm-hmm. But Ethereum allowed um, you know, more complicated financial logic mm-hmm. to be expressed and embedded in the blockchain. Um, and these kind of more complicated bits of financial logic are often referred to as smart contracts. Because instead of um, you know, relying on a pen and paper legal contract, they are more of a pure software system where the code sort of enforces the state of that contract. And so um, in 2016, I was starting to see a lot of experimentation with smart contracts. And I felt like the larger crypto ecosystem um, maybe didn't realize how big a deal this was. Mm. And a lot of the investment groups at that time in 2016 were all structured as venture funds looking for equity investments um, in startups in the blockchain ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed, though, about a lot of those, those venture firms that were operating here was that um, while they maybe had produced positive returns that accompanied the growth of the cryptocurrency industry, they had massively underperformed most of the kind of basement hackers I knew, like myself, that mm-hmm. had actually generated way better returns basically by buying cryptocurrency itself, mm. um, which is, is liquid and freely traded instead of buying the equity of various startups or, or software businesses um, built on top of, of cryptocurrencies. And so um, with Polychain, what I set out to do was create more of a, um, a structure that was well-suited to actually purchase digital assets. So not the equity in businesses, but actually digital assets themselves. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do a very, very long-term investment strategy focused on these digital bearer assets. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of what I was excited about and continue to be excited about is this idea of, of smart contracts. And I think that these are a very, very big deal and extremely powerful devices that we're, only really, we're still only really learning what they are capable of and the types of ways that they can organize humans and capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I remember I did an interview for Wired magazine in late 2016, when Polychain was, you know, getting off the ground. And um, the area that I talked about, um, being very excited about, I called programmatic finance. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of combining this idea of money and financial services products with pure software. So anything that you can express in code, you can now embed in a blockchain and have a, a fully functional financial product that is sort of operated entirely um, with the code in that smart contract. Mm-hmm. So you're not reliant on any individual um, party or, or, or government or jurisdiction or, or corporation to sort of process that financial product. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of programmatic finance um, now I think has, has sort of become this larger wave that we now call DeFi right. or decentralized finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, this continues to be an area that I'm very excited about. Um, okay, there's a lot of a lot to unpack there. So I, I want to start with kind of your your main driver to start the fund seems to have been Ethereum. Is that right? Like you were excited about this, you know, the possibility of having smart contracts. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that that was one of the very big catalysts. Um, you know, embedded in the name of the fund, right? Mm-hmm. We're Polychain, not Monochain. Right. Um, when I launched Polychain. Bitcoin represented 95% of the market share mm-hmm. in cryptocurrency kind of digital assets. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of my bet was that there was going to be a lot of very interesting activity that was uniquely enabled by alternative protocols to Bitcoin. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not that Ethereum was this nice to have thing. It's that mm-hmm. these, these types of constructions are uniquely possible using um, what's called a Turing-complete scripting language that's embedded into Ethereum. Right. And so, um, you know, that bet on that remaining 5%, um, long tail growing because of all the unique applications that it would enable, a lot of people at the time thought I was crazy. <laughs> um, because historically, you know, up to that point, empirically, Bitcoin had really outperformed any alternative project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I continued, you know, and I continue to be convinced that these alternative systems will, um, you know, kind of uniquely enable new types of, of business models, new types of, of products um, that are, are kind of only possible because 
if, if a novel architecture at that kind of lowest uh, level where people can um, embed code into these blockchains. Right. So do you think this 5% long tail will grow enough to potentially overtake Bitcoin's relevance or market share, however you want to measure it in, in the crypto industry? Um, so, so I um, think Bitcoin is a very powerful system mm -hmm. with a lot of very unique properties. So, um, you know, Bitcoin, you know, I've called it sometimes like the cockroach protocol <laughs> in that um, it will survive anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the great features of Bitcoin is actually its governance, which mm -hmm. is that it doesn't have governance. Like there, there is no system to upgrade Bitcoin. And while that is on one level kind of a bug um, in that, you know, a lots of new um, breakthroughs on a technical level have come out since Bitcoin was invented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly speaking, Bitcoin now, you know, if you were to build Bitcoin today and just make it, you know, a bit more efficient, a bit more scalable, um, you probably wouldn't build it the same way that it was built in 2009. In, in mm -hmm. fact, you definitely wouldn't. Um, but that said, the fact that if you own Bitcoin today, you know that it will be the very same Bitcoin um, that you own today, you know, in 10 years, I think is a very powerful feature. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would, you know, never bet against Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, however, that said, um, as an early stage investor with a lot of knowledge about how these low level technical breakthroughs will manifest um, new types of business models, new types of ways to organize humans and capital. I think that there is um, outlier opportunity as an early stage investor in many of these alternative systems. And I continue to believe that the market share, you know, represented by Bitcoin will continue to drop. Now that said, it does not mean the price of Bitcoin um, will, will drop, right? Mm. It's more that its market share relative to the macro growth of this entire area um, will reduce. Right. Because the industry itself will just, will just be bigger. Um, so, so you also mentioned this um, particular or specific feature of, of your fund that, that was different to um, most funds back then, which is that you wanted to invest specifically on digital assets and not on, on equity. Um, and I, I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper on on how you invest in, in, in crypto uh, protocols and, and, and projects. Do you only invest in, in the token and, and not the, the equity? And when you do, is it kind of like a long-term hold or do, are you actively trading tokens and participating in these protocols? Um, for example, in, in all the DeFi protocols, providing liquidity or um, taking you know, an active role in governance, um, yeah, what kind of investor are you? Yeah, so we continue to operate that digital asset fund today. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah, long-term buy and hold. So okay. none of the alpha generation here is trading strategies, mm -hmm. algorithmic trading or anything like that. We don't enter into short positions. We don't use, um, you know, synthetic or derivative style instruments. Um, it's a very vanilla early stage, you know, uh, acquisition and then buy and hold approach to the digital mm -hmm. asset kind of landscape. Um, now, in addition to that, we've since launched venture funds that do equity investing in startups building in the blockchain landscape. And part of the reason that we did that is that between 2016 and 2018, the entire size of the kind of cryptocurrency um, landscape grew by something like 100 times. Mm. Um, it just went through another dramatic period of growth, very similar to the time period between 2012 and 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and after that period of growth, um, I, I started to feel that the opportunity at seed stage in equity um, was there for the first time. Mm. Um, I didn't feel that it was um, a compelling opportunity in, in the 2016 landscape, in part because um, there simply wasn't a big enough outcome. So, you know, when I launched Polychain, Coinbase was the most valuable, you know, cryptocurrency business in the world. And it was valued at $400 million. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, that may sound like 
you know, a lot um, of value, but it, it, in the scheme of a venture fund, that's not a very big um, outcome, you know, mm-hmm. in order to balance um, inevitably the seed stage investments that fail or, or are more middling outcome. Um, and so, you know, in order to justify seed stage equity investments, you need to feel that there's a, a very enormous market for those seed stage companies to grow into. Mm-hmm. And so by the time 2018 um, came around, um, I felt like that market was there. And that's why we launched our venture funds that do seed stage equity investing. Got it. Um, can you name some of the the biggest investments you've made in, in both equity and, and tokens? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think some of the um, systems that on, on the kind of, um, you know, cryptocurrency protocol um, level that we're excited about include um, Filecoin, uh, Polkadot, uh, Definity, um, and Tezos. Mm-hmm. These are some of the kind of, you know, more emergent, newer architectures mm-hmm. that I think have very, very interesting properties. Um, that's mm-hmm. not an exhaustive list, um, you know, of the types of things we're investing in, but these are some of the um, kind of next generation systems that are in the midst of launching. Another very recent launch we saw was, for example, Cello. Um, which is sort of a entire blockchain protocol dedicated to the issuance of synthetic assets that are pegged to uh, more traditional asset classes. Mm-hmm. So the first um, um, product there is like the cello dollar, which is mm-hmm. pegged to the to the U.S. dollar value. So mm-hmm. I think um, those are some of the things that we're excited about. Happy to dive into um, what any of those are. Mm-hmm. Um, then on the on the equity side, um, you know. One of the things we're really excited about are businesses built around this concept of, of smart contracts. Mm. And um, I do think that very, very unique business models are emerging out of this um, concept of, of smart contracts or totally programmatic financial services. And um, one of the trends we're seeing that I think is, is really, really interesting, and we've seen it sort of evolve over the last several years, is this idea of corporations, um, you know, and when I use that word, I mean basically a way to pool capital and organize humans to grow that, the size of that capital, right? Um, you know, where, where the very corporate structure itself is defined by uh, smart contract code logic. So a DAO, so, basically. Yeah, so I, I like to call these kind of internet sovereign corporations. Because mm-hmm. I think that, um, sometimes this idea of DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, people often think about um, sort of a community um, a governed system. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, I'm really talking about, you know, what, what might be like, you might call like a capitalist entity, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's, it's actually trying to go out and accumulate capital and then use that capital um, to, to actually grow the amount of capital that it's managing. Um, very much in the way that a traditional corporation would. And you have all these great features of corporations like um, the liquidity of secondary shares. So the owners of that corporation can be transferred quite rapidly between different parties. Um, You have turnover of what you might call management, right? Where um, the people that make critical decisions on behalf of that corporation and that capital um, can transition and change. So it's not reliant on, you know, one single uh, uh, person, um, and then, of course, you just have the ability for all of these different people to organize their capital together. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this kind of um, crowdfunding, so to speak, right, mm-hmm. where um, 100 different people with a dollar might not be able to accomplish a lot. But if they all put in that dollar and now have a pool of $100, sometimes with that um, scale of that capital, they can then garner much better return together than they could have, right, with that individual dollar than on their own. Um, so all of those sorts of different features that make um, a corporation a very popular system for wealth generation in our society, now you're starting to see all of those different structures um, be defined by code logic. Mm-hmm. And so these kind of internet sovereign um, businesses are, are something that I'm really excited about. And I think it will be a, a much bigger trend than many realize. Mm. So... Um... So can uh, have you invested in like what do you consider or or what uh, companies or projects are spearheading what you view as internet sovereign corporations and in which have you invested in? 
Yeah. So um, one seed stage investment we made uh, was in a business called Compound. Mm-hmm. Um, so Compound, we we led the seed round of and participated in, in the Series A uh, round of, and um, this is a you know Compound Finance was was a business that built a um, effectively a money market in a smart contract. Mm-hmm. So this is a borrow and lending uh, protocol where you can pool um, capital and people can get an interest rate if they're kind of lending the capital. And on the borrow side, they can take a loan from that pool. Mm-hmm. One of the very, very interesting properties of this is um, these are all fully collateralized loans. Um, and because it's all enforced through the smart contract itself, there's no concept of identity or geography or underwriting or um, you know, you know, any of the features that you normally would put in a loan contract where you need a legal entity or an individual person um, and you need a region in which that, like or a, jur- a legal jurisdiction, right, that will enforce that contract and you need lawyers to draw up the terms of the contract, um, you know, and you need this concept of underwriting risk and all of these sort of things that go into um, any sort of lending contract, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it be a, a private loan to a business or like a mortgage or, or whatever it might be. Um, in this case, because it's a smart contract, all of that can be automated with software. Mm-hmm. And all you need to rely on is the security of the underlying blockchain rather than um, effectively the courts in the jurisdiction in which you would traditionally draw up a pen and paper contract. Yeah. Um, so again, this is very powerful construction in my mind for allowing any two people in the world to enter into basically an arbitrarily complex business arrangement. Um, In this case, it's it's narrowly lending, but I think over time, these things will become much more um, sophisticated. So Compound Finance, you know, Mm -hmm. built this, you know, business around that lending protocol. And then, um, and this happened actually very recently, um, basically, you know, um, replaced that business entity with um, a a cryptographic, you know, digital uh, token system, where instead of like owning shares in in a legal entity, um, you know, we are now owners of of compound tokens, Mm -hmm. which represents rights to governing that underlying smart contract system. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that, you know, now that sort of compound um, business, so to speak, it's more like a pure blockchain system um, that, again, I would call it sort of sovereign to the internet rather than a particular uh, jurisdiction. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that Compound is a great example of the type of business that was able to, you know, so far move from, you know, a pen and paper business to a, a pure um, software-based business. Yeah, I, I, I agree. What Compound has achieved is is pretty incredible and in just the, the the short time it's it's been live it's really enabled this entire smart contract powered money market um allowing people to borrow and, and lend permissionlessly uh you know with the only requirement of having an ethereum wallet i think the the user experience and paradigm change uh, in 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 this kind of internet of, of money is is incredible. Um, but so I, I wanted to ask you about the comp token that you now own because you're a, you know, one of the shareholders of, um, compound finance. So comp had an, an, you know, an amazing, I guess, debut in listing, um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it, it, you know, went up in value several times, it's now the most valuable token in, in DeFi. Um, and it has really um, uh, spurred uh, people to, to deposit more, more funds into the protocol in, with hopes of getting this token, right? Because a compound is incentivizing users to uh, deposit funds. And in exchange for that, uh, those users are, are getting comp tokens, and and this has you know allowed it to become um, even larger than MakerDAO, which was Hastert was up until today the kind of the king of of DeFi, and it's now been dethroned by Compound because of the introduction of of the comp token, um, and it it just like spurred this frenzy in in DeFi with you know 
tons of other protocols announcing their own governance tokens and their own um, liquidity incentives with with their token. And you know, to me, it it's you know it it, it shows that this this token me- mechanism does is is effective in in incentivizing use, but it's also spurring this sort of like frenzied speculation that we've seen in other um, crypto bubbles at a, at a smaller scale for sure. Um, but wanted to get your thoughts on whether this kind of like frenzy and speculation is healthy. I mean, how, how sustainable is it if people are using these protocols just to get these governance tokens and not to actually use the protocol? Yeah. So, um, a lot of what this category, you know, can broadly be defined as mm-hmm. um, has been called, you know, liquidity mining or, or like network mining, right? right. And it's where um, you incentivize the users of a system who are contributing to the network effects of that system by actually distributing to them a right to future revenues from that network, right? So I think one of the very critical um, ways to think about this is that these kind of network mining systems, mm-hmm. um, they do not make by default for a good underlying product, right? right. You need to have a compelling um, value proposition for users, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, once you have that compelling value proposition and you have you know, what is, is often called just kind of product market fit, right? There's a market for what you're building. At that point, um, when you have a network effect um, and liquidity being kind of a subset of this larger concept of network effects, um, where the more users there are in the system, the more valuable it is for each user of the system, right? Mm -hmm. And those network effects exist in terms of liquidity, but also in more traditional web applications um, like Facebook or Instagram, right? Those services are more and more and more valuable to the individual the more people join them. And that's often a very tricky sort of chicken and egg problem to bootstrap a network Mm. because liquidity begets liquidity, users beget users, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's hard to bootstrap the whole thing from zero because why would I be the first user of Instagram? Why would I be the first trader on on an exchange, right? You you kind of, the value proposition isn't there unless you can draw on lots of users all at once. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of network mining system where you actually distribute basically ownership in that kind of internet sovereign corporation to the users that are bootstrapping that network effect. It doesn't make for a good product by default. You need that product market fit separately. Mm -hmm. However, it is um, sort of gasoline for network effects, right? Right. It it just absolutely um, accelerates the solution to that chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, it's a really exciting model to me for mm-hmm. bootstrapping internet services and financial services that all rely on these network effects in order to be valuable to the internet, to, to the individual user. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really, really excited about this kind of liquidity mining and network mining models that are emerging. And mm-hmm. I think that um, the confusion, you know, or, or that could lead to a frenzy, as you put it, mm-hmm. is, is, um, is confusion that the, the, Liquidity mine does not mean the underlying product is compelling. Right, right. right. Um, you need both. But if you have both, I think the liquidity mine is an incredible mechanism for accelerating network effects mm-hmm. that over the longer term is going to be applicable to many different types of business models, even beyond uh, financial services and building liquidity. Mm-hmm. So not just for um, trade mining or lending mining, you know, yield farming as, as it's being called. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the future, we will see a similar type of network effect mining um, to bootstrap, say, a social media platform, hmm, right? Yeah, hmm. like w- what if to incentivize early users of Instagram, you basically gave those users, you shares know, of Instagram. Uh, shares of Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite logical, right? Yeah. You get these early passionate users that are actually contributing value to that end business by their individual activities to gain a share in the future revenues that that business um, earns. Mm-hmm. So it's more like a community-owned, um, cooperative sort of, of, of business that's all native to the internet, right? right. And I think that um, 
you know, it doesn't, again, the liquidity mine does not mean there's product market fit. But if there is product market fit, I think the liquidity mine is a brilliant mechanism for distributing ownership of the protocol to the users of the protocol and accelerating those network effects and is a massive sort of wealth generative for everyone in the system. Like nobody loses. It's Mm -hmm. not a zero-sum game. It's actually a wealth generative uh, mechanism. But this um, revenue distribution through these tokens, this needs to be voted in, right? Like with Compound, it doesn't, it's, it's not included in how the token works right now. For now, it's just a governance token. So I guess the hope um, in, in people who are mining comp tokens is that down the line, it'll be a way to, to have ownership and, and get part of the, the revenue that the platform is generating, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And very similar to many uh, traditional web businesses, um, you know, Facebook was around for years building those network effects before it ever turned on advertising and had a real business model. Right. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is not a new playbook from the perspective of building a valuable business. Mm-hmm. It's focus on network effects, user acquisition, um, and scale before you focus on uh, revenue generation. And right. so I think that, um, yeah, I think it's, it's very rational. I don't think that at the relative small scale that a lot of these projects are on, they should be focused on revenue. I think they should be focused on growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, um, the other thing is that, you know, those compound token holders, they are the governors of this system. If they want to turn on various different types of revenue models that one could imagine, um, it's up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not this central party that they are reliant on, um, mm-hmm. to turn on those, those revenue systems. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to me, um, I think that it's, it's, it would be myopic to be an early stage investor in many of these network effects style businesses and be asking, where's the revenue? Mm-hmm. If you see this type of dramatic growth, um, you know, in general, if you can garner lots of users and lots of capital, there's always going to be a business model available somewhere. Right. And so to me, um, yeah, it's, it, this is not reinventing the startup playbook. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's rather leaning into it. Right. And do you plan, I mean, speaking about uh, these governance mechanisms, are you planning on, on being um, an active uh, or, or polyting, being an active part, uh, participant in compound governance system? I mean, are you planning on pro- proposing any, any changes to the protocol, um, any changes to, you know, the, these revenue mechanisms? Yes, we are. Can, can you elaborate on, on um, yeah, where you're I mean, Yeah, listen, I, um, I don't want to give any concrete idea of the, uh-huh. the exact types of things that we may propose in a given system. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, by virtue of being large owners of this underlying system, we have a huge amount of skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And um, we're running a fund. We want these tokens to be as valuable as possible. Right. Um, so we are going to, um, you know, make whatever proposals and vote on, um, you know, p- proposals that others put forward, um, you know, in order to maximize the value of our holdings. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, we we plan to be, um, and and have been, frankly, in Compound and other systems, quite engaged in the governance and decision-making around the design of those systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, some systems that have been live with on-chain governance um, for a while, um, you know, this is, are things like Tezos, um, things like Cosmos, um, things like um, Maker. Um, We've been engaged in those systems now for years. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that more and more of these systems are coming online. And as they do, you know, we're going to be covering uh, governance in a lot of different systems. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned Tesos, and that reminded me, I wanted to ask you um, about in in your token investments, you mentioned um, a few of what are considered Ethereum killers, you know, Um, Infinity, Tesos, um, Polkadot, and wanted to get your thoughts on on, on that term, you know, Ethereum killers, if you think that they are competing with with Ethereum, and kind of your view for... um, whether it'll be, I guess, I mean, you said it yourself, it's in your name, Polychain. I mean, do you think the future will be multiple different blockchains with their own use case or what are your thoughts? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, 
it's, you know, to give, you know, an example that's already out there, I think it is extremely short-sighted to view Ethereum as competitive to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. This is not a zero-sum game. Um, Ethereum is capable of lots of things that Bitcoin is not. At the same time, Bitcoin has a lot of features that are desirable um, and aren't really present in Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Each of these architectures um, is quite different. And while at times there could be overlap, it is crazy to think about this as a zero-sum game where only one system can succeed in the long term. Mm -hmm. What we've seen throughout the um, 10 years of the cryptocurrency landscape is actually um, a divergence from a single system um, you know, towards a, a system of multiple blockchains that can all uh, provide value to the end user and actually um, you know, uniquely enable different types of applications um, well, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I really don't like um, the sort of false narrative that every blockchain is competitive with every other blockchain mm -hmm. um, and that there could only ever be one winner. Mm -hmm. um, that is one of the big reasons why um, my firm is called Polychain, mm -hmm. um, because I do think in, in the long term, you know, there, there is no steady state long term, right? This is all going to be roiling chaos for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, um, you know, even, you know, amidst that um, chaos, there is always going to be um, different value propositions for the different architectures. Different systems are going to be suited for different use cases. And I view this as not a zero-sum game. I think that um, enabling new behavior that's not possible with Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, for example, the Filecoin system, which is really adding the capability for a smart contract type of system to, to deliver not just mathematical logic, but also um, things like images, right? Right now, when you look at um, smart contracts embedded in Ethereum, one of the big reasons we see financial services applications being one of the big use cases is because Ethereum is effectively limited to um, mathematical logic, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, comp you can compute compound interest um, or, or do multiplication or division in a smart contract. But if you want a more rich web-like user experience um, to be delivered to the end user with a smart contract, today Ethereum can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but with a system like, say, Filecoin, you're going to be able to deliver uh, an image to the end user. And so now, instead of just having these internet sovereign corporations be financial services, over the long term, you will have these internet sovereign corporations owning things like social media products, mm -hmm. right? And I think that, um, no, it, it won't all be on Ethereum, but that's mm -hmm. okay because Ethereum um, is going to enable all sorts of behavior and already is enabling all sorts of behavior that I think is extremely well-suited for Ethereum. So yeah, I, I really don't like this um, this the narrative of sort of um, Bitcoin killers, Ethereum killers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think it's it's really stupid. Yeah, um, and okay, and then with with the, this DeFi being right now mostly on, on Ethereum, do you think that it's going to be you know that Ethereum is going to going to be kind of the finance chain, and then maybe Filecoin would would be more like uh, a social media chain and, and then Definity will be for something else and, um, and, and, and so on. I mean, is, is finance the main use case that you're seeing for Ethereum or will, will that be shared too among, among different blockchains? Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's hard to say, mm -hmm. um, obviously, you know, these things playing out in the wild are very, very nuanced and complicated considerations mm -hmm. for why um, an individual entrepreneur may build something on one system versus another. Mm -hmm. And many of those are technical and architectural in nature. Like what is this uh, system capable of? Um, there's also though other considerations, like where are the users, right? Mm -hmm. So today, you know, there are um, millions and millions of Ethereum wallets all out in the world um, that are capable of interacting with a given financial protocol that's embedded on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, there's a lot of different considerations that go into why build um, on a certain sort of stack of technologies. Right. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I, I don't have a really, really strong view about in five years, where are people going to be um, 
interacting with these financial services systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that also depends on the various roadmaps for the actual low-level protocols themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ethereum has been in this process of upgrading to Ethereum 2.0 for many, many, many years, right? Mm -hmm. And um, if they can deliver and it works, um, ostensibly, there will be um, capability for more scalable um, uh, smart contracts to be embedded on Ethereum. Um, you know, meanwhile, projects like, say, Definity, um, you know, today, I think, are, um, you know, th- they have today, relative to Ethereum, um, a better architecture for, um, you know, highly scalable, um, you know, when your smart contract needs to be highly scalable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is not, not every system, um, but also when you need more synchronous user behavior. So most of the things in Ethereum today are somewhat asynchronous. Um, and it's because the block time in Ethereum is on average something like 15 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't serve well when you want to um, scroll a social media feed. Think about if every image took 15 seconds to load, right? right. Completely breaks the user experience. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, by virtue of having you know faster block time, for example, faster finality, you may see new types of applications that, again, are sort of uniquely enabled by Definity mm-hmm. um, that you just simply couldn't build on Ethereum today. Um, so I think that it's going to be complicated. As I called it before, it's going to be broiling chaos. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, you know, there's, there's going to remain um, use cases that are best served by specific blockchain systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, makes sense. And I, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier about how you were, you know, excited with the idea of smart contracts because they they enable programmatic finance. Um, do you see that, you know, it seems like that's finally coming a reality, becoming a reality right now with with DeFi. Um, so, you know, given that this was kind of the, the, the things that excited you to... And, and drove you to create your own fund um, back then and seeing it becoming a reality right now. I'm, I'm just, you know, really interested in um, your opinion about um, decentralized finance and, and what, what have been, uh, I mean, what's, what's, what are the most exciting projects or trends that you're seeing in this space right now? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, we've talked about a few of these. I mean, I think, these automated financial services are, you know, very big right now. And I think how in the short term, like the next one to two years, mm-hmm. you know, will grow dramatically. Um, I think that the, the type of, of, you know, uh, smart contract execution environment will over time lend itself to many types of applications beyond financial services that look a little bit more like uh, rich web experiences that we think of on the internet today, like mm-hmm. social media apps, you know, things like Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and I think that many of these will also be, um, you know, internet sovereign, where they won't really be businesses in a jurisdiction, they'll rather be a collection of humans and capital that are sort of all on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so outside the purview of any specific geography, right? They're sort of agnostic to geography, agnostic to jurisdiction. Um, but rather are, are sort of native to the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are a couple of the of the very uh, big trends that you know we're excited about and excited to continue investing in. We've been ex- investing in those trends for several years now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that um, you know those are very flexible and open structures too, because the, this is all open source and all programmable and remixable. Um, and I do view a lot of these systems as, you know, we're the, the emergence of like a new way of organizing humans and capital is a very, very big deal. Mm-hmm. This is like the development of the corporation itself, um, you know, going way back in history and the development of stock markets and everything. And when you think about how big of an impact those types of organizational structures for organizing humans ha- has been and how much of an impact it's had on society. I think we're at the very early stages of a new, a, a truly novel um, structure that can organize humans and money. Um, so I just find that very exciting. And I think as kind of a tech megatrend, um, it's going to be, um, 
you know, extremely massive and, and sort of unstoppable. Mm -hmm. Um, no, it's exciting. And I, I want to get your, to, to, to wrap up, you know, we're living in a very, um, you know, chaotic and uh, dramatic <laughs> time um, with everything that's happening this year from riots, uh, Black Lives Matter protests um, and coronavirus. Um, there's been, you know, the world seems like it's in in this um, in this kind of tipping point of you know something happening, um, and people are thinking of uh, things and their property and and their privacy. I think in in, in different ways now. Um, do you think this can be be a driver to accelerate the trend into more you know in, in internet sovereign? Um, organizations like like what you described or do you think it'll continue to be kind of a, a gradual movement towards that i mean i think the world is going to continue to become more and more chaotic and complicated mm -hmm. um and i think that um for better or worse i do view that as a massive tailwind for um cryptocurrency systems that are sort of native to the internet Mm -hmm. um, and organized on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I guess it, what we're seeing today in, 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 the, in the world will provide kind of this, uh, additional driver, uh, for these different trends that we talked about to, to, to maybe take off. Um, it'll definitely be interesting to watch and yeah, I'll be covering it and, and you'll be, you know, investing in it and participating in it uh, as you've been for a, for a long time. So, um, Olaf, thank you so much for, for taking the time. It's been such an interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, looking forward to all of the things that are going to happen in this area over the next 10 years. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week. I want to give a shout out to Ampleforce Ample, that's A-M-P-L. It's an uncorrelated base cryptocurrency that recently launched a liquidity incentive program. Its unique protocol, which automatically adjusts supply makes it a good candidate for an uncorrelated collateral type in DeFi.